and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, and I do not. Each week, we ask Hallie to explain something that we don't understand, and this week, we're looking into zoo. Zoonotic disease. Zoonotic disease. <laughs> Have Sarah Packabush, the one and only Dr. Sarah Packabush. Dr. Sarah, welcome yes. to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me. Just to put this out there, I am not a medical doctor of the human type. I am a veterinarian, so I work on non-humans, mostly. Mostly? Yeah, 100% non-humans. <laughs> non-human yes. doctor. Yes. Which I think is important to say. But you had to go to non-human doctor school. I did. I had to go to... That's what they're called, actually. So if you Google that, that's exactly what's going to pop up. Uh, I went to <laughs> Washington State University, um, where I got my doctorate of veterinary medicine in 2018. So I'm still sort of a baby vet, but that means I still know a lot of book smarts, <laughs> which is helpful sometimes. Yeah, Dr. Sarah and I, we work. I guess in proximity to each other. We don't actually do that much work with each other, but we do share an office at, at where we work in the same place. Yeah, and Hallie gives me a lot of information about plants that I have no idea about and blows my mind with things that don't bleed because that is not my specialty. <laughs> me too. I remember one time you had a lecture about ringworms and you asked me if it was relevant to horticulture and I got to like impromptu share my knowledge about nematodes. Yeah, yeah, like soil nematodes, because yeah. I was totally talking about that, and I was like, this is not my area of expertise. <laughs> Where is Hallie? She knows soil stuff. If it's not inside of an animal, then I'm like, uh, I don't know what this is. And yeah. as I learned in our staff meeting last night, earthworms are not nematodes. No. No, they're anaids. Yeah. Annelids. Yes. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know either, but I know that it's different. Yeah. So at the end of last year, we did a bonus episode that was this game show format. And I asked these questions. I would give uh, Hallie and Catherine a word. And it would be, is it Star Trek? Is it Star Wars? Or is it agriculture? Love it. And one of them was zoonotics. And I knew that. And you knew that. Because Good. of you. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that I've, I have eked my way into the lives of <laughs> other intelligent people <laughs> in some way or another. <laughs> That's well, great. Can you start by kind of defining what, what zoonotics means? Yeah. Tell us about them. And Absolutely. I, I just want to say that I did sort of skim uh, the notes that you gave us, and I am terrified. It's going to be fine. We're going to get through it together. Okay. Um, and I'm not, we're, and we're just skimming the surface, really. This is, um, zoonotic disease is something that people will study for their entire lives. In fact, a lot of people will study one of these diseases for, you know, their entire academic career. So this is just barely skimming the surface, but it's really, really interesting stuff. This is kind of, um, I just watched Austin Powers this week, this weekend, <laughs> and I would like to say this kind of thing is my bag, baby. <laughs> um, just to throw an Austin Powers reference into there. Um, so zoonotic disease, the definition of zoonotic disease is a disease that's spread between animals and people slash humans. So this could be really any, any pathogen or anything that can cause illness. So this is, this could be viruses. This could be a bacteria. It could be parasites, which we were just talking about. It could be fungal. So pretty much anything that can cause disease in a human or an animal that can then be given to something that is not of their species between humans and animals. 
So um, this is a this is kind of big on public health because this is why we have a lot of public health legislation in place and a lot of people who work for the CDC, who work for the USDA, are going to be kind of looking out for all of these diseases to prevent these zoonotic diseases from crossing their species borders. The CDC actually estimates, and the WHO also estimates, that it's about six out of every ten known infectious diseases in people are spread from animals. Whoa! And, which is so, a lot. Yeah, that, lot that sounds yeah. like... A lot. It is. and it, But it's not necessarily what we might think of as spreading from, you know, like a puppy sneezes on your face and then you're going to get the sniffles. It's not, it's not quite that direct. Some of these are, you know, arthropod born or transmitted. So it could be, you know, an animal that gets bitten by a tick that has a certain disease and then you get bitten by that same tick or a mosquito or something like that. So not all of these are directly transmitted. But that is a big number. I mean, 60% of all human infectious diseases that can cross bound, like species boundaries between humans and animals, which I think is a pretty big deal. Hence why we put so much legislation and energy and effort into preventing these things from spreading, mm -hmm. because there are so many of them. So in addition to that fact, here's another da -da 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 nature fact. <laughs> Um, which is that about three out of every five new or emerging infectious diseases in people are spread from animals. So, and I'll talk about this a little bit later. So this would, these would be newer emerging diseases that we haven't seen before, like Nipah virus or mm. Ebola virus or HIV, all of which are actually zoonotic diseases. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I have sort of a brand new thing to be afraid of that I wasn't afraid. I mean... I guess it was always there. It was just something I never really thought about critically before. Yeah, well, you're not, you, you shouldn't have to. That's why we have people that work at the USDA and the <laughs> CDC so that you don't have to be super scared of all of these things. Um, and I'm hoping to eventually talk about how we can try and mitigate these risk factors so that everybody isn't going to end this podcast and feel like they have to bleach everything in their house. Okay, so when you're thinking about risk and like the risk that you bear to get some kind of zoonotic disease is there diff are there different things you can do to lower your likelihood of getting a disease oh yeah so it would it would help if you knew what kind of diseases are in your area so for for example in the area where Hallie and I live um, it's a very arid environment and one of the things that are on my list of things that could be contracted between animals and humans would be hantavirus. There are ways that you can mitigate those risks because we know that hantavirus comes a lot of times from indirect contact in the environment with rodents. Mm -hmm. So we can try and mitigate those risks by making sure we, we have a rodent-free household. So setting traps, cleaning frequently, using masks when you are cleaning so that you're not going to inhale any of the hantavirus particles or viruses. But that's not something that we would worry about in, say, Michigan, where it's we don't have those kinds of diseases. So it, some of these are geographically, I wouldn't say isolated, but more prevalent in certain geographic areas. Um, some of these, you're going to have a larger risk factor depending on what you do for your job. For example, as a veterinarian, I am much more <laughs> yeah. likely to get uh, especially direct contact with any kind of zoonotic disease. So me as a gardener, I deal with a lot of feces and manure, right? Mm -hmm. So does that put me at risk if I'm like out touching sheep manure and cow manure and stuff like that to then put in my garden as compost? Does that put me at risk? The thing that I would probably be most concerned about you as a female of 
childbearing age sure. um, who would be gardening would actually, not so much in this area, but in just gardening in general, I would be worried about toxoplasmosis, which is a I know disease. About this. Yeah, right? People have heard about this. I'm terrified of this. Um, there's not, you don't, you shouldn't have to be, ter- I think, I think that terrified is maybe a little excessive. But. So toxoplasmosis is a, is like a, it's a thing that, as far as I understand it, which is, I'm pretty sure is incorrect, it's a thing that lives in cat poop that controls your brain to want to get more cats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're putting that out there because I've never heard that before specifically, <laughs> but um, parts of that is are right. Okay. So it is a thing that that um, does live, quote unquote, live in cat poop. So it is a it's a protozoa, and it can be shed in cat feces. Cats are the definitive host for this disease. So all of these, it, to complete its life cycle, it has to go back into a cat. Okay. Cats will only shed this intermittently through their life. Um, usually, it, when they're younger cats and they're first infected, they'll do all of this shedding. So as a gardener. Um, especially if you're in a place where there are a lot of uh, stray cats. Um, a lot of cats will like to poop in places that are like uncovered sandboxes that children might be playing in or in your garden. And you might not know that there's any cat poop in there. So if you are around, you know, digging around in there and you happen to inhale um, some cat poop particles that have this protozoa in it, or more likely you're gardening without gloves and you decide that there's this beautiful carrot that you're not going to clean off and clean your hands and you're going to put that directly into your mouth, then you are more likely to contract that disease. Um, These protozoa can travel to places like your brain and that can cause some significant pathology or your eye. Um, In in pregnant women, it can actually cause a lot of birth defects in in the fetus. What's kind of interesting when you're talking about brain control is one of the coolest things about toxoplasma is that if that disease gets into rodents, it can cause them to have a decreased fear response to the cats, which makes them more likely to be consumed by cats. So it's a really smart protozoa. (laughs) I don't like that. That's awesome. Which will help it to complete its life cycle. Oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah, it's pretty cool. As a horror movie buff... I think very much zombie-esque of that yeah. disease. Um, there's but, a fungus that's similar, actually. Right? I know. I mean, But they're so smart. You yeah. know, these, these diseases are just... I would never think of that. I don't like I'm that. I'm not smart <laughs> enough to be a disease. Yes. So that's, that's something that I would be concerned for you. So I'm curious now, because you're talking about gardening, and you're talking about some foodborne illnesses, and you were talking about, like, washing off the carrot. I'm wondering... You know, is rinsing okay? Do you have to scrub it down? And are there certain growing methods that are associated with higher risk of foodborne illnesses or or zoonotic diseases? That might be a better Hallie question, actually, than it is a me question, because I don't deal with things that don't bleed. So once (laughs) it goes onto the carrot, other than like washing your hands thoroughly, that's kind of where I I tap Hallie in. (laughs) Yeah. So for the most part, rinsing is fine. Um, and there are definitely like growing systems that have a much higher risk of, of foodborne illness for different things. I mean, different different crops will have different risks 
fruits and vegetables versus, you know, something like dairy or meat has different risks. Um, but if you're looking at something that's in a controlled system versus something that's going to be out in the elements where it's able to interact with other things, you're going to have a lower risk in something like, you know, a hydroponic system or some kind of greenhouse system where everything is very strongly controlled. There are other trade-offs with, you know, that system versus growing just in dirt in a field. But when you're talking about foodborne illness and stuff like that, that's kind of the breakdown. Thanks, Hallie. Yeah. Nature fact. I'm so happy that I got to do that part. Me too, especially since I didn't think of one for this episode. So thank you for that. Yeah. Oh man, we've got so many nature facts that you can't even handle them right now. Dad, I really enjoyed this episode. It was so fun to make, yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting and you know, a lot of stuff I never would have thought about. You know what else I enjoy? What else did you enjoy? I also enjoy when people leave us reviews on iTunes. I love reviews so much. I really do. I check iTunes, which it's still called iTunes on my computer, all the time for new reviews. And whenever we see, get one, it's so great. We just finished up this big organic series. We're still hoping to do an organic agriculture Q&A. We have a lot of other big plans, and we would love for more people to get involved with the pod and be able to listen and find out about what we're doing over here. So if you are enjoying the pod and the direction we're taking it and the work we're putting into it, if you could please leave an Apple podcast review, it would make such a difference to us. Yeah, just click the stars and leave a few words saying how great you think we are, and it would help a lot, and it would mean a lot. And thank you so much. I know it might seem a little arbitrary, but those ratings and reviews really do make a difference in people being able to find the podcast. The more ratings and reviews that we have, the better the discoverability is for the podcast. So if you can do that, it would be amazing. And it makes a difference in my heart. It really does. <laughs> Dad will text everyone as soon as we get a new review. He's like, new review is up! That's Guess true. what they said! <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of thank yous, thank you, Lindsay, our Starfruit patron. Thank you so much. Our eternal gratitude unto you. Forever and ever. Well, should we get back to the episode? Back to the episode. So I kind of wanted to talk about just like briefly a history of zoonotic disease, which again, this is going to be like a, an extremely abbreviated version of this. But when we're talking about these diseases, I'm always interested to learn about how did this disease come about Yeah, in the first place. So in order for us to have zoonotic diseases, we have to have some kind of a relationship with the animal that we're getting it from. So this is kind of a natural product of our proximity and our relationship with animals and the environment. So uh, most of the zoonotic diseases that I, as a veterinarian, am concerned with are ones from domesticated animal species. So goats, sheep, cows, dogs, cats, that kind of a thing, which we domesticated so many thousands of years ago. Not a history <laughs> major, so I'm not sure exactly how many years that was, but it was a long time ago. So we And we domesticated those animals for a purpose. So we domesticated them for um, milk and meat and labor. And the closer we interact with those animals, um, the more likely we are to get the diseases that they are carrying, which they may or may not actually be sick from. So yeah, that's kind of how the basis of how that happened. However, 
there's still other zoonotic diseases that you don't get from domestic animals. And so these would be animals that we run into just in our environment. If you're a hunter, for example, hunters who are hunting rabbits are more likely to contract something called tularemia, which is a bacteria that can cause some significant pathology in humans, which we wouldn't necessarily be concerned with for me, who has no <laughs> very little interaction with rabbits. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of the history of where they came from. Some of the oldest zoonotic diseases that have been reported in humans in, you know, papyri and on Greek, oh, what are those what are those things called where you put a bunch of little things together? I don't like know. Like all the little tiles, you put all the Oh, like tiles. a mosaic. A mosaic, <laughs> yes. So like mosaics <laughs> and papyri and whatever else, you know, carved into stone. Um, again, not a history person. Yeah. So one of the oldest ones would be something like tuberculosis, which is transmitted by a mycobacterium. Um, there are several different mycobacteria that can transmit this, um, but people who are smarter than I am have found skeletons of over 4,000 years ago that were infected with TB. Wow. I, I didn't realize TB was a zoonotic disease. Oh, yeah. So tuberculosis is a significant disease in humans that causes millions of people to die mm -hmm. um, around the world every year. And in fact, in 2010, which I know is a little bit old by now, but there were 8.8 .8 million new cases and 1.2 to 1.45 million deaths just in that year alone due to TB. Wow. wow. So what do we what do we get TB from? What animal is that? carried in? Um, most of the time, what we're concerned about in the veterinary field is Mycobacterium bovis, which can be contracted from unpasteurized dairy products, milk, cheese, ice cream, whatever it is that you're going to be eating from a cow that has not been pasteurized. Pasteurization came about because there are so many diseases that we can contract from dairy products. Um, so if we pasteurize them, it's a lot less likely that those bacteria and viruses will make it through the pasteurization process. So pasteurization of milk does kill the tuberculosis bacteria, which is why it's a lot safer, especially for people who are immunocompromised, to have pasteurized milk sure. versus raw milk. A couple other diseases of history of note that you will be familiar with, I'm sure. One is um, Yersinia pestis, though you probably don't know it by that bacterial name. It is the bubonic plague that oh, caused sure. the Black Death in the Middle Ages, <laughs> killing a third of the European population. This is actually a zoonotic disease that's transmitted by a bite of an infested flea, and usually those fleas were found on rodents and pests and pests in the area, which is, I think it's pretty significant. I mean, the third of all of Europe. No, that's very significant. Okay. Yeah, it's extremely significant. I think if you, before this episode, if you'd asked me, like, name three significant disease events, that would probably be the one I could name. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's yeah. not an asteroid hitting Earth and killing all the dinosaurs, <laughs> but it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And that, actually, that disease is still, it's not seen as commonly right now, but it is still out there. And in fact, we, um, we have seen, even when the, in the past year, there have been reports of the bubonic plague uh, cases in veterinary clinics in Colorado and New Mexico. Can so, you imagine, like, calling a north, like, hey, I'm sick. What's wrong? Oh, I've got the plague. Right? I mean, you could call in sick to work on Monday and say, hey, I got the buboes. <laughs> 
Sorry, guys. I can't make it in. <laughs> but yeah, you could definitely call in. It's probably not going to fly because it's not that prevalent right now anymore. But we do see it pop up every once in a while. In fact, um, the prairie dogs that we see around here are potential carriers of of Yersinia pestis or the bubonic plague. Very cool. Yes. Um, Love to know that. Right. The one that most people are probably most familiar with is rabies as being a zoonotic disease because who hasn't seen Cujo? Me, but I know what it's about. Right. I mean, you don't have to see Cujo because everybody <laughs> knows that it's a rabid dog. Or Old Yeller. I, I didn't know that he had oh, I, rabies. You know, I've never seen Old Yeller. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew they shot him in the end, but I thought for some reason that was just the end. I didn't realize he got rabies. <laughs> well, it's the end of the movie, Old Yeller. We gotta shoot you now. <laughs> like no that reason. kind of the end of the movie. It's about to end. I guess that does give it a nice justification. Yeah, yeah. but you know that. Yeah, they do. So if you if you go back and watch that movie, and again, I haven't seen it for ages, but I guess that's why I'm a vet. I remember those those kinds of things. But it was really sad. The little kid has to go and shoot his yellow lab. And, but the reason why he is doing that, if you can, if you go back and watch it, is because the dog is like furiously trying to attack the kid through this fence because the dog was bitten by some kind of other rabid animal. So, um, so old Yeller actually contracted rabies and that's why he had to be put down because oh. if he, if he were to bite a human, um, this disease has a 99.9% .9 fatality rate. Whoa! Jeez. That's so high! Yeah, it's extremely I thought high. you could get shots and be fine. So it's preventable with vaccines, yes. But if you are um, if you are unprotected or if your pets are unprotected from a vaccine, they ha it's very, very likely that they're not going to make it. Um, even if you have a vaccine or if you've been vaccinated for rabies before, which most people aren't unless you are in a field that you're more exposed to that or at higher risk. So I have a rabies vaccine, for example. Um, but I wouldn't expect Hallie to have a rabies vaccine because um, you don't usually work with rabid, potentially rabid animals. Even if you're vaccinated, you still have to go and get post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP afterwards um, to try and mitigate any possibility that you're going to get rabies because of its extremely high fatality rate. There have been fewer than 10 people in all of human history that have survived this disease. Um, wow. It's, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That's a bad one. It's a bad one. And it's been known for a long time. They talked about it or they, I don't know, wrote about it or like carved about it. Sure. <laughs> mosaiced about yeah, it. Yeah, they mosaiced about it in um, a 2000 BC Mesopotamian codex. So people knew about this Then have known about this for a long time. It's pretty scary. Yeah. That's, it's on the top of my list of scary diseases that I could potentially get because of my job. Yeah, that's hardcore. There are more recently emerged disease that I think are interesting to talk about. Um, one of them is West Nile virus. That's a little bit more known than some of these kind of obscure diseases that I could talk about. So West Nile virus is actually pretty new. It was first discovered in the United States by a veterinarian in 1999. Hold the phone. At a zoo. Yeah. So not in the West Nile. Right. Not in the West Nile. Okay. Um, it's transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, so this is where the factor of increased world and international trade comes in because more than likely a mosquito was hitching a ride over to the United States from an area where this was an endemic infection. So while international trade is great in many ways, um, it also increases the likelihood that we're going to be spreading diseases 
easily. Another one that everybody likes to talk about is Ebola. Ebola is a fairly recent disease. I mean, when we're talking about zoonotic diseases, and it could be thousands and thousands of, year, of years old, Ebola is fairly recent, like within the past hundred years. It's been linked to hunting and handling infected great apes in the African interior area. And there have been several outbreaks. The the recent really big one, the 2014 to 2016 outbreak, which I don't know if you guys remember, but everybody was like, yeah, I remember oh my that. God, freaking out about it. Um, there were over 28,000 cases and over 11,000 deaths from that outbreak alone. Wow. Um, so it causes a hemorrhagic fever and which it's a, a group of several different diseases that can cause a hemorrhagic fever. But this one has a 20, anywhere between a 25 to a 90% fatality rate. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good summary. Good assessment. I was going to ask you to sort of talk about this number a little bit because 11,000 deaths is one of those that, that sounds like a big number, but is it about the number of cases or is it about the sort of rate of attrition or what, what's the most alarming part here? I think one of the things uh, in my perspective and keeping in mind that I don't do humans that's not really my area of expertise. But one of the things that that I think is, is a really interesting aspect to think of about this is in these areas where there are a lot of outbreaks, there's a, it's very hard to control because it's very contagious and it's contagious in the way that it's spread by bodily fluids. So when people die, there are certain funeral rites that culturally people will go through um, and to ask people to give up their, their cultural history and identity that they have with um, passing on from life to death um, in in the name of science and public health, we all, while people might not understand why that is super important, um, they might disregard those, those public health claims or public health measures to try and prevent them from getting infected. I yeah, don't know that's, if that answers your question. That's an interesting thing to think about because... I mean, when, when you think about different things that can be a public health concern, animals, including like pets and livestock are a huge part of that. And like you're saying, like, that's a huge cultural thing as well. So I can imagine that that, like, I hadn't really thought about, about that background in terms of controlling disease for public health, especially, I guess, around like zoonotics and passing diseases from animals to humans. But I guess Old Yeller is a good example of that. Old Yeller is a great example. Um, and actually, the CDC had to put out um, these, like, informational public health flyers that backyard chickens is becoming is, is kind of a resurgence right now. Yeah. Even in the middle of the big cities, people will have backyard chickens, it seems like. Um, and the CDC had to put out this kind of informational thing that says, don't kiss your chickens. What? Right. Yeah. Which I never really thought what? was going to be a thing. I have backyard chickens too, and I've never intentionally kissed my chicken. My chicken has definitely pecked me on the face, but <laughs> that's not 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 because I was allowing that to happen. It just kind of snuck not in that there. Kind of, not that kind of peck. Right. It was actually a peck yeah. on my lip, which was really odd. But people are so are, are treating them like pets. They're not treating them like production animals, which has been the case for the rest of human history, because that is a domesticated species with a with a purpose, and that purpose was to provide nutrition. But now people are treating their chickens as pets, and for the first time in history, veterinarians are actually having to treat geriatric chickens for things like arthritis, because instead of killing their chickens after they're done laying, which is was kind of the natural way things would used to go. People are 
letting their chickens live until they die of old age. Wow, that's so interesting. And kissing them, apparently, which is why the CDC had to put that out. Like, hey, chickens carry zoonotic diseases like salmonella, campylobacter, that you can actually get and it will cause you to poop yourself. So don't kiss your chickens. Well, as Hagrid said in Harry Potter book three, people can be stupid about their pets. Yeah, yes. Not that I'm saying kissing your chicken is inherently stupid, but be aware, people. Yeah, just, you know, know what the risks are. Yeah. It's not the most, like, I don't know, beautiful thing to kiss. Right, and I mean, they don't have lips. Yeah. So it's not like, I don't know if people are actually, like, mouth-to-mouth kissing their chickens, but they're definitely, like, snuggling with them, letting them in their house. Interesting. Which I would just assume would be a, like a chicken poop palace by then, by yeah. that point. I don't... Anyway. So, yeah. There's, <laughs> speaking of that, there are continued outbreaks of zoonotic diseases always. Um, so, for example, just this year we had a brucellosis outbreak, um, a drug-resistant brucellosis linked to raw milk in February. And more recently, in April of this year, we had 109 illnesses due to an exposure of ground beef that was um, contaminated with E. coli. So these things are constantly happening. And, oh my gosh, we could do an entire podcast on just avian influenza because those outbreaks are happening all over the world all the time. Not always in the United States, but they're always happening. Um, So a lot of these zoonotic diseases are kind of at the forefront of a one health concept right now, which I'm a huge fan of. And I know Hallie's a big fan of, um, which just is the interdependency and interaction between the environment, animals and humans and understanding that we're all interconnected and the health of one depends on the health of all three. So a lot of these zoonotic diseases, especially the emerging zoonotic diseases are kind of coming to the forefront recently because of huge changes in land use. So more than ever, we are, we are moving these large pieces of land that used to be wilderness um, and we're turning them into heavy agriculture areas. And when that happens, we are decreasing the amount of environment that these wild creatures naturally had in the first place. And that's increasing the relationship and interaction that we are having with the wildlife and that all of the uh, domesticated species, so like beef or poultry or whatever, um, are having with that environment as well. So we're more likely to have a crossover or a spillover effect um, of zoonotic diseases from the wildlife to the domesticated species and, and back and forth and with humans as well. So all of this is being exacerbated by all this global expanding population and and need to feed that expanding population, which stresses me out frequently. Sure. As it should most people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Probably appropriate. It should. So what are the best ways to protect ourselves from all this stuff? Yeah. So um, some of the best ways are just really easy, logical things like keeping your hands clean. So if you're going to go out and handle your chickens when you come back inside, wash your hands before you accidentally eat a piece of chocolate like I am very prone to do. And all it takes is soap and clean water. You don't have to do anything too crazy. And if your hands aren't physically soiled, you can always just use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Or if you go to like a petting zoo, especially with children, the children don't actually have to touch the animals. They just have to touch the environment around the animals to contract something that's potentially zoonotic. So keeping your hands clean, keeping the hands clean of little ones that you're responsible for, things like that. Um, trying to prevent bites of arthropods, so using a mosquito repellent, trying to wear long clothes if you're going out hiking so that you don't get ticks on you, and checking yourself for ticks and things like that. And when you say arthropods, you just mean insects, biting insects? Yes. Yes. So so 
fleas, ticks, mosquitoes, mostly. Not so much lobsters. Great. Not so much lobsters, although, I mean, I've never been bitten by a lobster. <laughs> Those are crustaceans. Even I know that. Those are also arthropods. Are they? Crustaceans are a kind of arthropod. Oh. I'm planting my flag, yeah. and if I'm wrong, I'm going to be really embarrassed. Hallie Casey dropping knowledge nuggets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll double check later. I kind of think that she's right. It, I I think that she. I think that they are arthropods. I remember talking about crawdads being an arthropod. Okay. And that's like a small version of a lobster, right? Pretty much. Right. Yeah, I think okay. So. Okay. Anyway, um, so don't get bitten by any of those. Try to avoid being scratched and or bitten by animals, which is most difficult to do in my line of work. I'm almost always scratched or bitten or kicked by something on a weekly basis. And keep your animals healthy. So get them vaccinated for things like rabies. Get their poop looked at once a year so you know that they don't have any internal parasites that they could actually pass on to you. And when they get sick, take them to a veterinarian so that that vet can recognize whether that is or is not something that you can get from your pet. And I'm not talking about just dogs and cats. I'm talking also about exotics. I'm talking about like snakes and reptiles and birds and any kind of pet that you might have that you're constantly playing with and seeing in your house. Um, practice good pet hygiene. Don't let your animals lick your face. I have a hard time adhering to this because I have adorable dogs, but at least don't let them like lick the inside of your mouth, which I've definitely seen people do. And that just kind of makes me grossed out. Ew. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't really know where, you know, that they lick their butts right on a regular basis. So, <laughs> so I mean, or just be prepared. Just know that that's not the best thing to do. Um, if you have a sandbox in your outside area for your children. Try and cover it when they're not playing it so things don't poop in there um, because cats will poop in sandboxes. Keeping all of the wildlife wild. So if you see baby animals that you think they might be abandoned, call animal control. That's not your duty to pick those animals up. In fact, most of the time the mother is around but is scared of you so has gone somewhere and as soon as you leave she'll come back. Um, handle food safely for you and your pets. So don't, like, chop up a bunch of meat and then chop a bunch of vegetables on that meat board that you just chopped stuff on. Um, and cook all your food to a correct temperature so that you're going to kill all the potential pathogens. Drink pasteurized milk. Don't eat raw chicken. Again, ew. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is pretty logical, right? It kind of makes sense. Like, you shouldn't be... <laughs> Most people don't do these things anyway. And there's a reason why a lot of these are taboo. Like, nobody wants to eat... Like a chicken sushi. It's just not a good idea. And talk to your veterinarian about certain kinds of pets, especially if you or someone in your household might be immunocompromised or immunoaltered. So pregnant women should be careful around cats and kittens. By no means does that mean that a pregnant woman has to get rid of her cat. There are ways that we can try and, and reduce all the risk factors and just talk to your veterinarian about that. Children who are under five should not be in a household where they regularly have contact with chickens or reptiles or amphibians because they could contract salmonella a lot easier. And pregnant women should avoid contact with pet rodents because they could get something called lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus, which can cause birth defects. So just be, just be cautious. And if you ever have any questions about this, um, good places to go for these kinds of things are the CDC. They have a lot of public health zoonotic disease information out there. Um, so do some research, figure out in your area, what are you most geographically exposed to as far as zoonotic diseases and just, you know, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself. Yeah. The internet is 
fairly affordable. With that, I'd like to take back what I said earlier. Uh, don't kiss your chickens. That is inherently stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to throw any shade to any chicken kissers out there, but... You know, I mean, it's not something that I would do, but maybe I just don't have very affectionate chickens. Maybe they just like, maybe they've got really lovers. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This was a lot of fun and super cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have so much information. Sorry if I overloaded you. No, this was perfect. This was great. Yeah, I learned so much. And, you know, I'm more aware, but but not terrified. Good. I was hoping that you were going to say that you'll be able to sleep tonight without, like, worrying about some kind of zoonotic disease you could or could not get. After I wash my hands. After you wash your hands, yes. I think that's important. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It is produced by Catherine RJ and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. You can find all of our episodes as well as more information about the show and the team on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Join our community and learn more about each episode at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, and even custom art created just for you. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.